National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year, we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Is nuclear energy the future? We'll discuss this and nothing else with John Kotek as part of our special sponsored series on energy. We've been doing a number of these episodes throughout the last several weeks. Your regularly scheduled programming will return with our next episode. Our sponsor is ClearPath, an organization devoted to breakthrough energy technologies that you can find at clearpath.org. John is Senior Vice President of Policy Development and Public Affairs at the Nuclear Energy Institute. And you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rich. All right. So give us the uh, the basic uh, spiel. How did you get interested in nuclear energy and what do you do now? So my interest goes back to high school. I, I grew up outside of Boston in the, in the early 80s. There was a lot of activity around and opposition to nuclear power, particularly the Seabrook plant, which was being built in the state of New Hampshire, but also the Pilgrim plant in Massachusetts. And it put nuclear energy on my radar. And so learned a little bit more about it in high school physics classes, decided it sounded really interesting and went off and majored in it as an undergraduate and, and have been in and around the sector ever since. Good for you. That's pretty pretty uh, contrary in undertaking. I, I'm sure a lot of the publicity about the, the fights was not pro-nuclear, but you uh, went your own way. Well, it was, it was interesting. We, we had a, a physics teacher there in high school who actually explained that it really makes a lot of sense when you look at things like safety, and but also energy density, the lack of emissions that are you know, associated with nuclear compared to other alternatives. And so got a, got a good grounding in it early on. And the more I learned, the more I thought it was going to be an important part of our energy future. So here I am. All right. Well, if leaders across the West have list, had listened to your physics high school physics teacher, you might be in a, a better place in all sorts of ways. So let, let's take that that point from there. So what what accounts for the resurgence in interest and and not just interest? You know, things are really happening on the ground, but the resurgence in nuclear, which had a a bad name for so long, uh, totally unjustified, and we'll get into that some as well. But what what accounts for this resurgence? Well. It stems largely from the desire to move to a lower carbon energy system. Uh, That certainly explains the interest we've seen coming from the left, where we've seen more support for nuclear from the Democratic Party than than I've seen in any time in my almost 35 years working in this sector. But it's also things like energy security. You know, folks look at what's happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example, and that's led a lot of our allies in Central and Eastern Europe to take a fresh look at nuclear power. 
the job creation, the fact that nuclear energy creates very well-paying, long-lasting jobs, far more than any other part of the electricity sector has people interested. And, and then also the fact that we could use nuclear to help decarbonize parts of our energy use that are hard to electrify. So you think about things like production of hydrogen as a feedstock for ammonia for long-distance marine transportation, for example, or using process heat from nuclear to help clean up certain chemical refining activities. Those things and more have combined to really increase the interest in nuclear power. So let's go uh, on the, the safety issue. Let's go to the uh, unholy trinity of various incidents and accidents, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. So w- what what are the lessons in each was obviously different in different circumstances, but w- what are the, the lessons of those and why have they been distorted, misunderstood? Yeah. So from a U.S. and a Western context, you can really take Chernobyl off the board. That, that was a design that never would have been allowed to operate in the U.S. It wouldn't have been allowed to be operated in the way that it was. And we saw the catastrophic consequences that resulted. The other two you mentioned, you know, what happened at the end of the day was they lost the ability to get enough coolant to the reactor fuel. And so just a a little bit of background on how nuclear power works, what you're doing is you're capturing the energy that's released from splitting a uranium atom. And what happens as a result is you create a lot of energy, but you also create what they call fission products, which can be, in some cases, highly radioactive byproducts. So even after the reactor shuts down, which it did safely in the case of uh, Fukushima, for example, you still have a lot of heat that's being generated in the fuel. You have to keep that cool or for some period of time before it can, it can just be safe on its own. And so what the industry has learned is that for the existing plants, you need to provide a backup capability to remove that heat. So we've seen a lot of investment in the U.S. and abroad in providing even more layers of protection to ensure you don't have a, a similar occurrence. With new plants, what we've learned is that you can, by making plants simpler, by relying on things like gravity and natural heat convection rather than relying on pumps and valves, you can provide an even greater level of protection for that nuclear fuel to make sure that you don't have a a similar release while also making plants more cost-effective and more efficient to construct and operate. So what is it? Here's a dumb question. What is it about the uranium atom that, that makes it such an amazing source of energy over and above any, any other kind of atom you might want to split? You've just got an enormous energy density. When you're talking about re- releasing energy from a, an atomic nucleus, you're talking about you know hundreds or thousands of times more energy per unit volume than you get from say, chemical reactions, Mm -hmm. you know, from coal or or from gas. And so you've got an extraordinary energy density there that translates into the ability to provide energy carbon-free and safely and reliably for centuries. And and that that energy is latent within that atom? And then when you split it, it's released basically? Yeah, I'll really have to go geek on you, but we call it binding energy in the atomic nucleus. Yeah. And what's binding energy? Oh, that, that's just this. That's essentially it takes you back to E equals mc squared. All right, but it's it's essentially the en- the energy that is holding the atom together. And so when you strike a uranium atom with a neutron of the right speed in the right way, you split that atom and you release that energy that's holding that big nucleus together. 
Got it. So uh, at least at least I got it as much as I ever will. Um, so is it economical? Because there there's some you know free market types who are very rational about energy, and you know are not not theologically opposed to nuclear or anything of that sort. Say, well, you know, it just requires so many subsidies to uh, build these plants. They take so long. You know, it's really hard. And are kind of down in nuclear on that grounds. So what what are just the the economics of it? Well, and so there's there's some justification for that, and we, we can talk about it, particularly given recent experience here in the U.S. building new nuclear power plants. If you look at the reactors we have now, and so for your audience, we've got 92 operating nuclear reactors in the U.S. producing about 19% of our electricity. It, nuclear actually represents about half of the carbon-free generation we have in the U.S., so it's increasingly valued for that aspect. So, so, so 19% of overall and 50% of carbon-free. Exactly. And when you look at the operating costs for those reactors, now the, these reactors on average were, were built when in operation about 40 years ago, so you've paid off the construction loans. The operating costs are average less than three cents a kilowatt hour, which you know, for you know, those of us sitting here and in, in, for example, in and around the nation's capital, we pay something like six times that for our delivered electricity to our house. That of course is generation and transmission and some other things, but it just it goes to show that once you've got a nuclear plant up and running, it's actually a very cost-effective way to make electricity, particularly when you consider the value that nuclear brings. Now, there are cheaper ways to build to, to make electricity. Building a new solar facility in the desert southwest, for example, is going to be very cost effective. The problem, of course, is you know the sun goes down every day, uh, and so you need something on your electric grid that is what we call dispatchable or firm generation, something you can turn on and off when you need it. I think you had Brad Viator on an earlier podcast talking about how you need this dispatchable generation. It's just right. And so when you look at the overall system, when you combine things like wind and solar that are intermittent in their generation with things that are dispatchable like nuclear or or like natural gas, you get to a more cost effective overall system. You lead to it leads to lower cost to consumers. That's why, for example, a study was done looking at meeting the state of Washington's decarbonization requirement by the, the year 2045. What they found was they can increase or they can cause cost to consumers to be $8 billion a year less in that region if they've got nuclear on the grid versus if they try to do the whole job with just renewables and storage alone. Mm-hmm. Right? So because you, you avoid having to overbuild a lot of things like wind, solar, storage, and transmission that are really expensive. And that really takes me back to another comment that Brad made. You know, he talked about you don't build your electric grid to meet average daily demand. You need to plan for and be able to meet the extremes. And when you start looking at that imperative for system reliability, that's where nuclear really shines. And that's why nuclear is increasingly being looked at by our major electric utilities in the U.S. as a critical component of their decarbonization goals. So what would you point to there, uh, you know, folks on the right have for years, you know, said, well, what about nuclear? You know, let's, let's do nuclear. If you really care about saving the planet, do, do nuclear. What are the indications that folks on the left have, have warmed up to it, e- either advocates or, you know, states and localities? What, what would you point to that, that shows that this, this is kind of a, a broader sentiment now? Yeah, well, so we certainly saw first strong bipartisan support for nuclear through the bipartisan infrastructure bill. 
that was passed back in 2021. That included nearly two and a half billion, for example, for the demonstration of two new advanced nuclear reactor designs, as, along with a lot, a lot of other supportive provisions. But then even last year with the Inflation Reduction Act, which of course was a, a Democrat-only piece of legislation, it included tremendous support for new nuclear, it included a production tax credit for existing nuclear plants to make sure we don't see any more of those closed for economic reasons. For the first time ever, they put nuclear on par with things like wind and solar when it comes to incentives for new construction. So you can now get a 30%, even up to a 50% investment tax credit for new nuclear. If you build in energy communities, you meet certain domestic content requirements. And, and so we've seen nuclear increasingly embraced on, on a bipartisan level in the Congress. We've certainly seen the, the Biden administration actually being very vocal about their desire to both ensure that we keep today's nuclear plants running and in helping to get a next generation of nuclear plants built in the U.S. and, and abroad, which you know, has really got us in this place where support is just much more solidly bipartisan than I've seen at any time in my career. Mm-hmm. And, and plants are being built? So we've got two new reactors coming online in the state of Georgia. And those, the first of those should come online in the early part of this year. We've also got plants being built under something called the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program that got its start under the Trump administration, but has been continued on under Biden. There, you've got two reactors being built, one in the state of Wyoming, another in the state of Washington to demonstrate first-of-a-kind technologies. There's also an effort uh, underway to build a next-generation what we call small modular reactor in the state of Idaho. So those those projects are underway. You've also got our neighbors to the north in Canada. Ontario Power Generation is committed to building multiples of a U.S. Uh, small modular reactor design. In this case, it's a general electric design. The one that's being built in Idaho is uh, being built by a company called New Scale. And the Tennessee Valley Authority here in the U.S. is working with Ontario Power Generation to partner you know, on things like lessons learned and supply chain development so they can begin developing SMRs. They plan on bringing their first one online in 2032. We've, I, I can go on and on. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so stuff is happening. So I, I know it depends on which, which reactor where, et cetera, on circumstances, but generally, what does it take to build a reactor? How long does it take? How expensive is it? Yeah, so first of a kinds are going to take longer. That's just the nature of the you know the beast. First of a kind meaning a, a new design. Yeah, exactly. It's because you've got to go through the licensing process. So for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, in the U.S. we have something called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is responsible for regulating nuclear power and other applications of, of nuclear technologies. You know, that's an agency of about three thousand people. And before you can go off and build a new nuclear power plant, you've got to get approval for the design you're going to use. You've got to get approval for the site that you've chosen. You make sure it's, for example, you know, appropriate from a seismic standpoint. There are other hazards there at that site. And so after you've got approval for your design and for your site, then you can go off and enter the, the construction process. You know, the, these first of a kinds are, are planning to come online the end of the decade because they've got to get through the licensing and, and build their supply chain. When it comes to next of a kind, as we start seeing more of these things built, that should be a shorter process to the point where you know our developers think they can go from breaking ground to operation in about three years with some of these new designs. 
and and that's not out of line with global experience. We saw the Japanese bringing very large reactors online back 10, 15 years ago in, you know, in less than four years. So it's, it's very much consistent with the global experience. So another stupid question, are, are people still doing the look of the third, third mile Island? You know, it's just so iconic that those kind of the cones. Oh, the cooling towers. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on the site that you're at. So, some places you need a, a cooling tower and, and they use those in fossil fuel plants too. It's not just specific mm-hmm. nuclear, but, but more and more we're hearing about interest in air-cooled technologies, so where you would use a lot less water on what we call the, the secondary, the non-nuclear side of the, of the plant. You, you pay a small efficiency penalty, but you, you know, given concerns about water use and availability, that, that's getting increasingly attractive. Others, they have you know, what they call run of river, so you're, you're, you're just bringing the, the water in and, and heating up and then re- releasing it. That's, you know, that's something that's used in a lot of places. So it's a bunch of different places that are different ways you can go about that cooling aspect. But I think what, what, what you're also seeing is you're, you're seeing a lot of different approaches, some, some of which don't even depend on water for cooling the reactor. So for example, you've got, whether it's molten salt cooled reactors, liquid metal cooled reactors, gas cooled reactors, many of which operate at higher temperatures that, than today's reactors. And that unlocks a whole new range of potential uses for nuclear to decarbonize some of the industrial applications I mentioned earlier. And what what's the small modular reactor that you've referred to a couple of times? So there's there's several developers out there for the water cooled designs. The leading ones are New Scale, which has actually got an NRC license for its design. They're in the process of licensing an, an upgraded design. General Electric and Hitachi have partnered on a small modular reactor. There's a company called Holtec that has one. We're increasingly hearing uh, companies like Rolls Royce, EDF out of the out of France, more and more are bringing these technologies to market, as of course are the Russians and the Chinese. And then when it comes to some of these other novel reactor designs, X Energy uh, here in the state of Maryland is is developing a gas cooled reactor that's a, a modular build. TerraPower, which is the Bill Gates funded nuclear company building in Wyoming, they're developing a liquid metal reactor. This, at NEI, we've got two dozen or more companies developing a, f- a wide range of technologies, but those those are some of the ones that, that folks have probably heard about. So looking over overseas, so did France get this right? And could, could we have done that? Or were there just a- aspects to the French way of, of doing things that weren't transferable in, in, into the United States? Yeah. So the, the history there is, you know, France really committed to nuclear after the Arab oil embargoes in the seventies mm-hmm. and, and decided they wanted you know, to increase their degree of energy independence. And as a result, they've now got somewhere between 70 and 75% of their electricity on an average year coming from nuclear power. We've seen other nations uh, have similar rates of, of new nuclear build. And we can certainly do it here in the U S in the U S we stopped at about 20% uh, in part because we're blessed with a much wider array of energy resources than some of these other nations are. You know, certainly our friends in Japan have a real challenge on their hands. They're, they're importing coal and a lot of liquefied natural gas as they seek to get their nuclear fleet back up and running and ultimately expand it. So, you know, we maybe didn't need to go as far as the, the French did, but there's a lot of room for us to add new nuclear mm-hmm. here in the U.S. And did, did Japan overreact? No pun intended. 
to yeah i mean they 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 have i think they they've taken longer to bring their nuclear plants back online than they needed to and i think certainly the current prime minister has has recognized that and is trying to essentially double the number of reactors that they have running by the end of this year that may be a little ambitious but they're very much headed in the right direction they're also looking at re- replacing some of the reactors that they've closed down with new build so they're they're starting to head down the right track again. And where does Germany stand? Because if I'm not mistaken, Germany had an enormous reaction, overreaction to what happened in in Japan. It was going to move away from nuclear, but now you know, obviously, circumstances have changed with the the war in Ukraine. It it has. They have decided to delay the shutdown of their final three reactors, but but only by a few months. Remain, remains to be seen whether they extend that. Fortunately, we have seen other countries in Europe. Belgium, for example, just announced that it's going to delay its nuclear shutdown decision and extend the lives of their operating plants. The French had been talking about reducing the number of reactors or freezing. Now now they're talking about increasing. Poland is adding new nuclear, the Czech Republic, Romania, I mean, you name it, the UK, mm-hmm. a long list of countries in the, in the uh, EU space that are seriously looking at or committed to new nuclear bill just because you don't you don't need a a, a pipeline from a a hostile power <laughs> into your country to bring the uranium you got it. you're going to split yeah yeah that's it so let's say for the, the the sake of argument that we concede that your physics teacher in high school was correct and you are correct and we must embrace a nuclear future what do we need to do policy wise that we're not doing now you mentioned some uh provisions in those those big bills that that passed last couple of years but what what more if anything do we need to be doing yeah so uh, there are a, a few things that would be really most effective certainly at the federal level we have seen this demonstration of support through the inflation reduction act and the infrastructure bill that's a, a huge shot in the arm we need to see those demonstration projects through to completion. We probably need to see a few more public-private partnered demonstration projects to get some more technologies into the marketplace. At the f- state level, you know, a fair number of states have enacted what they call clean energy standards, and those go beyond the traditional renewable portfolio standards, which were there to, to try to create a market for things like wind and solar and and instead embrace all carbon-free generation. We need, we need to see more of that sort of activity at the state level and other state policies to embrace construction of, of new nuclear. You know, what we, we saw the experience with wind and solar, for example, you know, they, they were, in the case of solar, it was more than 10 times more expensive about 12 years ago to build solar than it is today. But we combined, you know, smart R&D investments with smart state and federal policies. And we created a market in which investors were comfortable sinking their money. And next thing you knew, there was a lot of innovation taking place and we've got a product that's cheaper. We're just starting to see that toolkit being used for nuclear. And so we need to see that sort of thing, again, done, particularly state action to complement what's been done at the federal level. In the regulatory space, we need to be prepared for a coming wave of applications for new nuclear projects in the U.S., you know, our, our nuclear regulator doesn't have a lot of experience regulating new plants you know, through the construction and initial startup phase. We need them to get ready for that and to make their processes more efficient so that when we get past this first of a kind, it's not a you know five-year effort to get a site and a plant licensed. 
So we need to see more in the way of uh, an evolution in the regulatory space. We need to prepare the workforce and the supply chain. Those sorts of things are starting to happen, but you know, getting the necessary investments, I think, will, you know, is still going to take some time. There's still some work to be done there. And then we need to be prepared and armed, as it were, as if you will, to compete and win in the global export market. Our biggest competitors are Russia and China. You know, they they play by a different set of rules, and for us to compete against them requires us to have very strong support. For example, at the federal level, there's a lot of federal review and approval that comes before you can sell a new nuclear power plant to another country. And so we need to ensure that the government and the Congress are aligned in providing the necessary tools for our industry to compete and win. We got to remember that you know when it comes to Russia, China, some of our other competitors, those are those are state-owned industries and companies we're going up against. So we're asking our companies to compete against countries. And when we do that, we've got to be prepared to maybe do a little more than we otherwise would to help level the playing field in those competitions. So that that's a few things that that top of the list for us. And and what kind of workforce do you need to to run a nuclear plant? What kind of jobs? Yes, you need a variety of things. You you need trained engineers, certainly nuclear engineers, but also mechanical, electrical, you name it, you know, in in the design and operations phase. But we also draw a lot of people from the the skilled trades, for example. Uh, there's, There's a lot that goes into the manufacturing sector. There's a lot that goes into plant operations and maintenance where we draw from either union workforce. And so apprenticeship programs are really important. We draw extensively from community college programs, technical skills programs. So we're seeing that ramped up. And then we draw a lot from the military. A lot of people with nuclear Navy or other military experience get involved in plant operations, but also plant security. So a, a number of directions in which we need to see workforce expansion starting to occur. So are there, uh, is there any particular state that, that does uh, nuclear particularly well and has the appropriate suite of policies from your point of view? We've certainly seen several states in recent years uh, enacting policies that are supportive of the current fleet of nuclear. So, for example, we saw the states of Illinois, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey enact policies to make sure that plants didn't shut down prematurely. We actually saw the state of California take action this past year to preserve the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, the last operating nuclear plants in the state of California, due to their energy security and supply concerns. So they've gotten it right from the existing fleet perspective. When it comes to new build, some of these things like clean energy standards will create more of a demand pull for new nuclear. So that can be a big help. We've seen other states that are, are passing things like uh, small modular reactor or advanced reactor study bills. We're seeing others that are, for example, the state of Idaho passed a tax incentive to attract new nuclear to the state. For those who are interested in learning more, my employer, the the Nuclear Energy Institute, put out a publication on state policies that I'd I'd ask folks to, to look up and see the full range of what's happened. But we've seen a wide variety of policy actions up to and including repealing longstanding moratoria on nuclear construction, which existed in more than a dozen states up until recent years. But we're seeing more and more of that repealed as folks realize that nuclear has a big role to play. 
So in conclusion here, paint the, the picture for us. Let's say we, we get the all, all the right policies and we make all the right moves on this. Say, you know, 10 years from now, where are we? What, what does a nuclear industry look like? What is the energy mix in the U.S. and what is nuclear contributing to it? Yes. So 10 years from now, you will see several new nuclear plants in operation. You will see dozens of new nuclear plants in construction with many more in the permitting pipeline because the 2030s really are the key decade in terms of utility planning for bringing new nuclear online. Just, just because there, there's that, you, you need that runway? Yeah, you need, you need the runway. And that's when the utilities are really looking at increasingly having retired their coal assets and to an increasing degree, some of their natural gas assets as they try to meet their own decarbonization goals. So you'll see a lot of nuclear under construction. In particular, you will see nuclear plants under construction at coal plant sites that have been announced for closure. It's important to recognize that a coal plant workforce is actually very well suited to do most of the jobs that exist at a nuclear power plant. Because once you get beyond the nuclear island in a, in a conventional nuclear plant, you're talking about a steam-driven power system. It looks a lot like a coal plant. And so we're seeing a lot of interest in building coal or building nuclear at the site of coal plants that have been announced for closure. You'll also see the U.S. increasingly competing and winning in these global export markets, probably working with our partners in Japan and South Korea. We've, we've got a tremendous partnership with those nations in delivering new nuclear energy systems. I, I expect you'll continue to see that. And as a result, you'll see the U.S. exerting more influence and really having reclaimed its leadership role when it comes to things that go beyond just nuclear energy, things like nuclear nonproliferation, security, uh, safety regulation, other areas, cybersecurity, other areas where you want the U.S. to be setting the global norms and global standards. And by working with other nations to deliver new nuclear power projects, we're also going to be able to spread our influence in important areas like those. So that's what I think you're going to see going forward. Great. John, John, this has been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Highly informative and good luck out there. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a special sponsored edition of The Editors. Again, your regularly scheduled programming will return with our next episode. Thanks again to John. Thanks to ClearPath, an organization devoted to breakthrough energy technologies that you can find at clearpath.org. And thanks especially to everyone for listening. We're The Editors. We'll see you next time.